So, probably almost all of you have heard the news uh, last week that Andy Bray, a member of our church, passed away last Saturday the 2nd of June. Andy and Nikki have been part of our church since uh, the very beginning. Actually, they were part, they were one of the five leadership couples that actually launched our church, and Andy was one of our foundation elders and a good friend. So, this is me practicing not getting emotional for tomorrow. Because uh, tomorrow is Andy's funeral, which I'm going to be taking. So I'm trying to get all my tears out today with you so that tomorrow I'm okay. But I won't be okay tomorrow either. Uh, but he was, a, he was a good friend and an outstanding leader, wonderful husband and dad, and a, just a key uh, Christian believer in our world today. And I want to actually stop and pray, uh, if I could, for Nikki and uh, for... Olivia and her husband Asher and for Ben and the wider family as uh, we farewell Andy tomorrow. And I'd be asking you to pray for them uh, tomorrow. I'd ask you to pray for me uh, tomorrow and Robin, who's leading worship. It's, uh, it's going to be a big day, but I want us to just pause uh, and, and watch that. Obviously, if you're listening or watching this down in Hastings or online, uh, his funeral will have already happened, but for us live uh, today here at Botany, it's, it's tomorrow. So I'd just like us to pause and pray. God, thank you for the life of this great guy. Thank you for the legacy that he leaves. Thank you for a, a model marriage to the rest of us. Thank you for the example that he has given us of a great dad who was sold out for his kids. Lord, thank you too for the model that Andy was of someone who endured through suffering. And in all of the valleys that he went through in life, and they were many, he walked those valleys with you, with courage, with joy, with selflessness. He wasn't perfect, but he was a great guy. And we celebrate today, Lord, that he is with you in heaven, that while his body is with us here, his soul is with you, and we celebrate that today and celebrate the hope that one day we will see him again, and one day we will jump in puddles, and we will worship the Lamb together forever. God, we want to commit Nikki to you, and Ben and Olivia and Asher as they grieve. Pray especially for your strength and empowerment for them tomorrow as they face what is a huge day. Would you give them grace? sustain them. But not, not only for tomorrow, Lord, but for the days and weeks and months ahead without Andy here. And God, we just pray for the wider family, too many of whom who don't know you in a personal relationship. We pray for the many friends and people who have been impacted by his life. We ask that the celebration of Andy tomorrow would be one that brings you tremendous glory and points people to you, because that's what Andy would have loved. 
we want to say thank you for his life. We want to commit Nikki and the family to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've been uh, prepping for Andy's funeral and getting ready for that, I this week have reread his book called Treasures in the Darkness. And I was especially impacted as I reread that book, which I read when it first came out, uh, by the story of how he came to faith in Jesus. Andy didn't come from a Christian family, a Christian home. He was introduced to the idea of a relationship with God when he met this gorgeous English woman named Nikki. And uh, I'm not sure how much of her was part of the journey, but certainly through her, he discovered what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And this is the way he describes it in his book, Treasures in the Darkness. He wrote, My new faith has become a springboard into a life that was more meaningful than I could ever imagine. Radical changes began to take place in my life almost immediately. My outlook was different. My reason for being was different. I wanted God to use my life, no matter how long or short it was, to make an impact. That last sentence especially is... is I think incredibly telling. It's, it's quite poignant, really, to read it in the aftermath of him passing into glory uh, and think, well, his life did make an impact uh, for God in response to what God had done for him through Jesus. But it's also a really powerful sentence, that last one. I wanted God to use my life, no matter how long or short it was, to make an impact. Because that essentially is exactly what the Apostle Peter is arguing for in this letter that we are looking at together at the moment. We're in this year-long series around a theme called Love Right Where You Are, and we're in our third kind of key preaching series at the moment, which is in a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote in the New Testament called First Peter. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to come there with me at First Peter chapter 1. And we're looking at a section, verses 17 to 21, just five verses today, that really are about what Andy wrote in that last sentence, about uh, responding to the grace of God and what God has done for us by living a life that reflects the wonder of what God has done. And really, Andy, I think, is a great example of what Peter is arguing for. The section that we are looking at this morning comes in the middle of the first chunk of this letter. Peter began by calling the people he was writing to elect exiles in verse 1 of chapter 1. And those two little words kind of capture a lot of what he was trying to go after. He described them as exiles because they were kind of like people who were living in the culture, the society, the community they were part of, but they didn't really fit because of their belief in Jesus. They were kind of pushed to the margins But Peter wanted them to know that even though they may have felt kind of on the outer because of faith and kind of pushed to the margins, they were actually very much on the inside of God's family, that they were chosen and loved by him, they were elect. And what Peter then does through this letter is he goes after these two concepts of being elect and exiles, of both being chosen and loved by God and called by God to live out their faith in the world. In fact, most of the letter is going after that idea of being called by God and what does it look like to live our lives for God, to love right where we are. But before he gets to that, what Peter does in the first part of his letter and through chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 is he explains more what it means to be elect, what it means to be chosen and loved by God. So we saw two weeks ago, it means we've been chosen, we've been loved by God and gifted this glorious future that God has in store 
for us that Andy has now already stepped into. And then last week, Nick showed us that he's also chosen us to live a very distinctive lifestyle that reflects uh, the one who is now our Heavenly Father. And today what we're going to see is that we've been chosen and we've been loved, but what Peter wants us to understand is, is what that took was incredibly costly. And we have been loved with a love that cost God immensely, and in light of that, we should live our lives in a way that reflects our gratitude and thankfulness for all that God has done. So the big idea today is this. I want to give it to you up front and then kind of unpack it as we go through here. It's that we've been chosen by God, we've been loved by God at an immeasurably high price. And so in light of that, let's really live for him. And that's essentially, that big idea is essentially what Andy was saying in that last sentence here that I've highlighted now. I wanted God to use my life no matter how long or short it was to make an impact. Why? Because in Jesus, Andy had found a life that was so much more meaningful than anything he'd ever experienced before. And so in light of that, he really wanted to live for God and let his life be an impact for God, which is what it was. And that's what Peter's calling for in these verses that we're looking at today. He's saying, I want you to understand and I want to flesh out for you just how costly this redemption is, this new life that Jesus has given you. I want you to understand how much this took and how significant this is because if you really get this, Peter says, then you'll want to live the way Andy lived. You'll want to live a life that impacts people for the kingdom of God. So that's what we're looking at, and that's what we're going after. And so I want to read this passage from 1 Peter 1 and then unpack it together. We're going to read the whole thing. It's only five verses we're looking at today. So it's 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 21. Since, Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. Uh, like the big intro passage to this whole section uh, from verses 3 to 12, this is actually one sentence in the original language. Verses 17 to 21 is one long, convoluted sentence. But there's one key idea in it. There's actually one main verb. It's a command. Back in the previous section, verses 13 to 16, that Nick took us through last week, there's about four or five imperatives, four or five commands, where it's almost like a machine gun just being fired at you, um, where he's saying, you know, roll up the sleeves of your mind or gird up your loins, set your hope on God, live a holy life, and it's kind of command after command. Uh, this time, there's one key command that Peter is giving, and it's at the end of verse 17. Live out your life here. Live out your time as foreigners on this earth. In other, words, in other words, live your life for God. And what I think he's doing here, this is the single key command of this passage, I think he's picking up the thought of the previous section that Nick took us through. 
I think he's picking up all of those commands that he gave to, to roll up your sleeves of your mind and get ready and set your hope on God and live a holy life. He's grabbing all of that section and he's repeating it and reiterating it in this kind of single command. Live out your life here on earth, this temporary residence you have on this planet before you get into eternity. Live life well. That's really the whole essence of his letter. And so he's kind of coming to that and restating that command. But the key idea of this section is he's picking up all of these commands and summarizing them, but he's giving us the reason why we should do that. And that's what comes in verse 18 here. Live out your life here as foreigners on earth. Why? Because, he says, you were redeemed. You were redeemed. Now, what does that mean? The idea of being redeemed or redemption. If you... Uh, watch a number of movies, that word may be familiar to you. It's often used by uh, advertisers of movies or producers to describe a particular storyline of a movie. In fact, I googled this week movies about redemption, and I got this massive list. Many of the movies you may have watched in the past were on this list, because uh, in our modern, uh, especially movie-making world, a story of redemption is a story of someone who's been down on their luck or in a, in a bad space in life, whether it's their own fault and poor decisions or just circumstances of life. But it's a redemptive story if they work their way out of the mess they were in and find themselves in a, in a new place that is better. So movies like Rocky are a redemptive story. Movies like Shawshank Redemption are a redemptive story. And in the movie-making world, anything where people move from what their uh, negative space their life was in to something much more positive and better is a story of redemption. It's kind of like that in the Bible with one big difference. In the Bible, redemption was a story of moving out of a negative, dark a bad place into a life that is so much better. But in the Bible, redemption is not something you can do for yourself. And that's the key difference between the biblical concept of redemption and the way that movies work out this kind of theme in our world today. In a movie, it's about a rocky figure uh, training hard and working out their lives and finding the girl of their dreams and all of the things that come together to make Rocky kind of take on the world. In the biblical world, if you are redeemed, it's actually something that someone else has to do for you. And that's because the, the idea of redemption actually came out of the idea of slavery. The word redeemed actually means to be released or to be set free. And the imagery behind it actually comes from the world of slavery. And there's two key ideas behind that. For the Gentile readers who would read this letter that Peter originally wrote, when they read about being redeemed, their minds would immediately go to the slave markets. Slavery was widespread through the Roman Empire. In fact, a few writers have suggested that up to a third of the people in the Roman Empire were actually slaves. For some of them, that was a horrendous, horrible experience. Whereas in other situations, slaves could actually be very well treated and well paid and have degrees and all kinds of things. It could really vary widely what that experience was like in the Roman Empire. But this is what Gentiles would think of when they read Peter writing about being redeemed. To be redeemed was to be set free from slavery. 
And a slave could never do that on their own. They needed someone to come into the slave market and to pay the price that it cost to, to, to get them and then to set them free. To be redeemed, to be set free from slavery was not something a slave could do for themselves. They needed a third party to set them free. For Jewish readers, they had a similar idea because they were part of the same empire, but they had a deeper meaning again of what that meant because the particular slavery they had in mind when they thought of this word redemption was the exodus from the Old Testament where the nation of Israel had been slaves in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh. And they had been enslaved for generations, for hundreds of years, until God sent Moses to set his people free. And the word that is used through the Old Testament story of the Exodus is the word redeemed. God came through and demanded of Pharaoh that he set his people free. And so when the readers of this letter, when they, the original readers read this letter from Peter, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, they all had this idea in mind, that when Peter says, you were redeemed, what Peter is saying is that you were once a slave and now you've been set free. And this is not a rocky story of redemption, how you've worked hard to make your life better. It's a story of how someone else has come and paid the price and set you free from the slavery that you suffered. And I think Peter and Paul, who uses the same imagery, I think they got this concept of using this imagery of slavery and being set free. They actually got this off Jesus. Because that's the way Jesus described our lives and what he had come to do. In John chapter 8, Jesus said these words, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins, Jesus said, is a slave to sin. In other words, all of us, because all of us are sinners, all of us do what is wrong, all of us have rebelled against God's rule over our lives, all of us are slaves. And that's one of the key pictures of what sin does to us in our lives. We would like to think that we're better than that, but the truth of the matter is that all of us pursue things that are wrong, put idols into our lives instead of God, and, and generally um, mess our lives up. That's just the reality of where we find ourselves under God. And so what uh, what Peter does and what Paul does is picks up this idea from Jesus because what Jesus would say in verse 36 is if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Because implicit in the picture of slavery is the fact that you can't set yourself free. If you're a slave to sin, and Jesus said all of us are, we can't get ourselves out from that slavery. We can't free ourselves. We can't do enough or pay enough or work hard enough to sort out our sin problem. We need someone else to set us free. And that, Jesus said, is why he had come, to set us free from what is going on. And so what Peter is doing is he's picking up this image and saying, let me summarize everything I just said in the previous paragraph. Live a great life for God. And the reason you should live a great life for God, the reason you should live a life that impacts others for his glory the way that, that Andy Bray did is because you've been set free. You were a slave to sin, just as Jesus said. And he has come into the slave market, into Egypt, 
And he has set you free if you've trusted in Jesus. And what Peter is going to do in the rest of this section is as he is going to flesh out and help us understand what it means to be redeemed, what it means to be set free. And there's four key things he's going to highlight, and I just want to kind of run through these really fast through the rest of this section. The first thing he highlights is the cost of being set free, the cost of being redeemed. And what he says in verses 18 and 19 is that the cost of this was not with ordinary money, which is how they would have done it in the Roman Empire, but the cost was actually the precious blood of Christ himself. In other words, it wasn't like going into the slave markets in most of the cities around the Roman Empire where people go and purchase a slave and you had to pay whatever the going rate was and then you could set that person free if you wanted to. Jesus said actually to set us free from sin, it was going to take something much more significant. Money alone couldn't do this. In fact, what Peter's doing right through his letter is he's contrasting the things in this world and things that have eternal value. So he talks about back in verse 4 that we have this imperishable inheritance, this idea of a hope and a future and an eternity that is guaranteed by God. It's not of this world. It can't perish. It can't be stolen. It won't die. It can't shrivel up. It's imperishable. But stuff in this world is perishable. And so he uses that same word to describe here, silver and gold. It's as, it's as though Jesus is saying, you can't actually redeem people's souls using something as basic as money. Because people's souls are worth more than all of the money in the world. The stuff of this world is, is nothing compared to the value that you and I have before God. I love the way that Pastor Chuck Swindoll uh, captures this, this idea. He says, Christ provided help for us at the cross where his own blood paid the penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. He says, he didn't pay in silver and gold, worthless scrap metal, compared to the price of a human soul. No, Christ paid with his blood, breaking the chains, opening the door, and calling the prisoners to step out of bondage. I love the way Swindoll describes money here. Silver and gold, stuff that we think is incredibly valuable. And he says, that's scrap metal compared to the value of your soul. To set you from slavery, God had to do way more than take all of the money in the world to pay to set you free. He had to give his own life. It reminds me, actually, as I was thinking about this this morning, it reminds me of the old ads that used to be on TV for MasterCard. You remember the priceless ads on TV? I, I actually found one of them on YouTube, but it was too late to throw it up here. But this woman is getting dressed to go out for an evening, and she puts on this beautiful gown, and it says, Evening Dress, $800. And she puts on this beautiful necklace, and it was jewellery, $1,500. And she picks up, as she heads out the door, this lovely black clutch purse. Is that what you call it? You know, $250 or whatever the price was. And then she's at this party and, and, and she catches the eye of a guy across the room who just stares at how gorgeous she is. And the caption comes up, making your ex-boyfriend jealous, priceless. And the tagline, and there were a whole bunch of these ads, but the tagline on every MasterCard ad in this priceless campaign was this. There are some things money can't buy, 
for everything else, there's MasterCard. You remember that? <clears throat> what Peter's saying, what Swindoll is saying, is there's a lot of things that you can buy with silver and gold and MasterCard, but your soul is not one of them. Your life is worth far more. You're priceless. And it was going to take something far more significant than a MasterCard or silver and gold to set you free. What it cost was the life of the Son of God himself. In the next chapter of this letter, Peter will write about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we would die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What Peter is underlining is that the cost of setting us free from slavery to sin, it cost the Son of God his very life. He had to step out of eternity. He needed to become a human being. He needed to experience life on this world in this fallen place. He needed to live a life of obedience that we've never lived. He then died on the cross and took all of the weight of our sins, the wrath of God for everything we've done wrong. He endured that and then rose again to conquer death so that then he could set us free from our slavery to sin. And Peter here is trying to underline, first of all, the cost of our redemption. If we're going to live great lives for him, Peter wants us to understand just how much this was worth to God and therefore how much it should be worth to us. I think one of the reasons why Andy lived a great life because he got this. In fact, he had a unique perspective on what this cost. Because of the kidney transplant that he had uh, the first time around, before he even came to faith in Jesus. Reflecting on it in his book, he wrote this. At that moment when he came to, to faith in Jesus, he said, I realized two profound things about my newfound faith that my transplant mirrored. The first was that someone had to die for me so I could have renewed life. The second was it wasn't until I became well that I realized just how sick I had become. I want to come back to that second point in a little bit later. But it's that first point I want us to see. See, for Andy to receive a kidney after a few years of dialysis in his, in his uh, late 20s, for him to receive a renewed life and get off a dialysis machine and have 10 or 12 years of freedom without needing to do that, he needed to receive from someone else a kidney. But the sad reality was for him to have that new life, it actually meant what well, came out of the death of someone else. The kidney he received actually came from someone who'd been killed in a car accident. And he received that kidney and was given this new life. And then he came to faith in Jesus. And he said, it made me realize that actually that's exactly what my new life with God has meant. Someone else had to die so that I could have life. And I think the realization of that was so stark for him that it helped him realize the enormity of what God had done through Christ. But the contrast of that actually leads us to the second point that Peter's going to make. Because in verse 20, what Peter says is that this plan to set us free from slavery, this was not an accident. This was actually devised before creation and then revealed in history. 
See, for Andy to get that new kidney, it actually came as a result of someone having a car accident, but that, that was an accident. No one had planned that. The person hadn't decided, you know what, I want to I give Andy my kidney, so I'm going to go and die so he can get that. It was, it was a complete accident. It was a random event. But what Peter's saying in verse 20 is that for you and I to be redeemed, for us to be set free from our slavery to sin, Jesus had to die, but that was no accident. It wasn't like God suddenly realized midway through human history, good night, this is a mess. I don't know, there's no other way. We're going to have to do something pretty radical. What Peter says in verse 20 is that Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times. In other words, before creation began, before the stars were flung in space, before light appeared, before God spoke, before time even became a concept, God already knew what was going to happen in his creation. God already knew we were going to fail and disobey. God already knew that we would be slaves to sin. God already knew there was nothing we could do to get out of that. And so he conceived the plan before creation began that Jesus would die for you and he would die for me. Isn't that radical? Uh, one Sanchez pastor I've quoted a couple of times already says, Peter wants us to know that our salvation was not a divine afterthought. It was not God's reaction to a world gone awry. God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. That makes, I think, this whole plan and this whole setting us free from slavery to sin even more precious. It's not that God just came up with this idea, you know, he'd sent Jesus to earth to set a good example, and then he thought, oh, actually, he could actually die. No, no, God had already conceived of this before he set any plan into motion. And he went through with that because he considered your soul and mine to be priceless. That's why Jesus when he was on earth, would say, the Son of Man himself, I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood from the very beginning that he had come to die because that was the only way that slaves could be set free from their slavery. So Peter's trying to call us here to live great lives for God by understanding the supreme costliness of what it took to set us free. And he's underlined the cost of that and the plan of that. And then thirdly, he underlines the result of that. And this is coming back up to verse 17, the very beginning of this section. And I've left this till now because I think verse 17 is very easy to misunderstand. But most of the commentators I've read, I actually don't like the way they handle it. Because what they say, verse 17 reads, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. So most people read that without reading the rest of the sentence. And most commentators assume that what, what, what Peter's saying is, hey, live a great life for God here for two reasons. One, because... Jesus has redeemed you and it's amazing, but secondly, because God is the judge and you should live in fear. And I look at that, and the more I read that and studied that, the more I went, you know what, those two things don't fit together. I don't think that that first part of verse 17 is being read in light of everything else. 
And what I've come to, and I've found a few commentators that agree with me, which make me feel slightly better, is that I think Peter's doing another contrast here. He's saying that as a result of what Jesus has done through dying on the cross to set us free, there's a change in our relationship with God. We no longer now live in abject fear of God as judge. The idea that the Bible repeats again and again is that God, at the end of time, will judge every person for what they have done in their life. And every single person who doesn't measure up to his standard of holiness will be judged and condemned. That's clear right through the Bible. Jesus talked about the judgment of God. And that's what Peter's talking about here. That's why the writer to the Hebrews, by the way, would say it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to stand at the end of time before God. As Revelation says, all of the books are open that record everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and everything you've ever said, and stand before God to be judged by that. But Peter's not trying to say that we should obey God out of fear. What he's saying, I think, in verse 17, is that this one who was the judge is now your father. Because at the cross, Jesus has absorbed the cost, absorbed the wrath of God. He's taken my judgment. I now relate to God not only as the judge, who I will stand before one day, but I'll stand next to Jesus, which is a good place to be. I now relate to that judge also as my father. And I now live out my life here in fear, but it's not an abject terror of God as the judge. It's a reverent and respectful awe of God as my heavenly Father. And I think what Peter's doing in the context of this whole passage, this whole sentence together, is he's pulling out the beautiful result of what happened through what Jesus has done. We've been set free from our sin, and a key result of that is that we now relate to God as our Father. It's what our one commentator, Peter, uh, Paul Gardner, agrees with me, which was nice. He said, Peter is not speaking of the same fear that a non-Christian would have before God the judge. Nevertheless, he said, Christians will stand in great awe of God, who desires that his separated people should live holy lives. So that's the result. So there's a tremendous cost involved in setting us free. That, that actually was planned before the creation of the world even began, which is mind-blowing. That results in the great judge of humankind now being our father that we respond to with reverent awe rather than abject fear. And then the final thing that Peter underlines about this redemption being set free from slavery is the effect of that on our lives now. And he says in verse 18, we have been redeemed, quote, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Now Jesus there is, uh, sorry, Jesus, Paul, uh, who wrote this? Peter. Peter here is not um, decrying everything that's been passed down from the ancestors of these people. He's not decrying human culture and saying, man, everything that got passed down to you uh, culturally from you know, your heritage is garbage. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is no matter your culture, no matter your background, no matter your ethnicity, part of what you got handed down by your forefathers was a sinful lifestyle in all of the emptiness that that carries. And I love the way he describes that, this idea of an empty way of life. 
people lose themselves in the pursuit of power and the pursuit of money, the pursuit of sex. People lose themselves in fun and travel and pleasure and career and all of these things that ultimately, when you stop and look at it, are empty and meaningless. And people try and escape through alcohol and escape through promiscuity and escape through drugs and escape through hard work. And everything around that is just emptiness. That's what Peter's saying. And what we've been set free from is that life of emptiness. Peter will describe it later in his letter this way. This is what you were used to doing, what the pagans choose to do. You used to live in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. I think he gets this list from Jesus, who had an even longer list than Mark 7. This is the stuff that comes out of a person's heart. Evil thoughts like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils, Jesus said, came from inside and defile a person. That's what we are enslaved to. And I don't think there's anyone sitting in this room this morning, I don't think there's anyone watching this online or listening to this that could look at that list in Mark 7 and say, I'm not guilty of at least something on that list. That's the life of slavery that Jesus was talking about. And Peter says that is an empty way of life. And that's what Jesus has set us free from. Andy got that. Andy understood that. As he reflected on his life after he'd come to faith, he wrote these words. It wasn't long before I began to reflect on my own life. I realized how selfish and sinful I had become, totally self-absorbed. Doing whatever I wanted to do, whenever I wanted to do it, my life was all about me. And I began to understand, he said, that I needed Christ in my life. And that's what Peter's saying. That we need to move from that kind of life And we've been set free from that to now, according to verse 21, finding our faith and hope in God through the resurrected Jesus. That's what Andy found. He moved from this life of self-absorption and self-interest and utter sinfulness to a life that suddenly had meaning and purpose and focus and impact. And that's what it means to be set free. I want to ask you a question today as we finish up here. How would you describe the emptiness of your life? If you're a follower of Christ today, I want to ask you to think back before you were set free. How would you describe the emptiness of what your life used to look like? If you're not a follower of Jesus at this point, it may be that you want to try and describe your life right now. How would you describe the emptiness of what your life looks like. If you're sitting here at Botany this morning, you've got a, uh, a bit of card on your chair. I want to invite you to grab that for a minute. I want to invite you to use that this morning as a, a little tool to think about the emptiness of your life without Jesus. Which of those words from Mark 7 would describe your life? What does your life look like now or looked like before you came 
to faith. And what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you to write a word or a phrase on your bit of card that describes the empty way of life that you're either existing in right now if you don't know Jesus or you used to live under before you came to faith in him. Down the uh, centre aisle here, under the centre aisle chairs, is some Sharpies. And so if you want to grab the Sharpie under your seat and um, use that and then pass it along, if you want to use a biro, you're welcome to do that as well. But I want to just invite you to take a minute and think about the emptiness of your life without God. What's, what word would you write on your bit of card? This is the word that Andy wrote on his well, I wrote it for him, but this is the word that he used to describe his life before he came to faith, self-absorbed. That was the emptiness of life without God for Andy. Here's my one, just so I don't leave Andy up here by himself. My word would be pride. I just want to give you a moment to think about what does your life look like. As you're doing that, and maybe to help you, I want to uh, invite you to listen to a song. It's a song by a band called Rend Collective that uh, Mel Palmer actually played for our staff uh, during our staff meeting a couple of weeks ago. We sometimes have a devotion and she was leading it and she played this song called Rescuer. It's a celebration of this idea that we've been rescued, we've been redeemed, we've been set free by Jesus. And in the song it goes through a number of descriptions of what an empty life can look like. So... As you're thinking about that and as you're thinking about what you want to write on your bit of card to describe your empty way of life, listen to the song that celebrates how Jesus has rescued us. He's our He's our rescuer, he's our rescuer, we are free from 
Love that when I heard it. Love some of those words. He is good news for the captive. He's good news for the shamed. Good news for the one who walked away. Good news for the doubter. Well, good news for the blind man and the poor and the one the world ignores, the weary, those who strive, those who are chained, those who are fearful. Our slavery to sin looked quite different depending on who we are and the world we were born into and the family we came from and the particular sins we've struggled with. But the truth of the matter is that all of us have been slaves to sin and all of us have had an empty life. But those of us who have been found by Jesus have been set free. And today we just want to celebrate that. Because what Peter is saying is that that freedom has come at such a great price that should cause us to celebrate and to be in awe and to live great lives for him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the band to come back up and they're going to lead us in a couple of songs, but we're not going to do communion like we normally do. Normally when we do communion, we sing reflective songs that help us think deeply. And today we're not going to sing reflective songs. We're going to sing more celebratory songs. We're going to song, sing songs that just help us go, Yay, God. Thank you, Jesus, for taking me out of the empty way of life I was in and setting me free. And so if you are a follower of Jesus today, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion during our time of worship here uh, at Botany. But I'm going to invite you to come with your empty description. And I'm going to invite you to come up the centre aisle and lay down your cardboard piece at the foot of the cross as a way of saying, this is what Jesus did for me. He got rid of my self-absorption. He helped overcome my pride. And it may be that you haven't fully won these battles. I haven't. And yet the reality is he has set me free from the penalty of that and he is in the process of rescuing me from the power of this. And today I want to invite you to come and lay down these descriptions of the empty way of life that you have been enslaved to and then move to the sides here and take the bread and the wine as a way of celebrating this new life that Jesus has given you. I don't know exactly how you're going to do it in Hastings, but we're going to give Harataki and Shona time to get some of these and get communion and figure that out. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, either sitting here this morning at Botany or watching at Hastings or listening to this online, I want you to know that whether you realize it or not, you are a slave to sin and your life really is empty. But Jesus has come to offer you freedom in life. This morning I wrote a prayer for you. And I simply want you to read those words and I invite you if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never taken this gift of freedom and life that Jesus offers, I want to invite you to do that now. Just in the quietness of your own heart to pray that prayer, maybe down in Hastings. You know what? This, I'm sick of this. I want a life that is full and rich and meaningful, not empty. And I invite you just to quietly pray the words of that prayer and come to Jesus and be set free.
So would you stand with me? And let's celebrate together this wonderful Saviour who has set us free. We can lay down the empty way of life that we have lived. Because we are redeemed. We are set free through the precious blood of Christ. Let's worship him. Thank you.